This morning, uh, we're going to begin by uh, partaking of communion together. And so, if you would, please pass the elements now. They're on the shelf on the inner part of the aisle. Paul to the church of Corinth writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Uh, The bread symbolizes the incarnation that God became man. We are uh, reminded through Advent that Jesus is our Emmanuel. He is our God with us, that he, that he was born, that he grew, that he lived, that he died, that he rose, that he ascended, all in body, in body. And he has given us this gift. And it is this gift which accomplishes something that we have failed to do since the fall, and that is to have a restored relationship with our creator. A restored relationship. In in biblical terms, relationship with God is covenant. Paul continues, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. His body given, his blood spilled, so that we can enter into the presence of God. As he has come to us, we can come to him. That word proclaim that you read there in the Greek has this connotation of celebration. Think about that. Celebrate the Lord's death. Celebrate. You know, since the death of the first human, uh, what cause has there been to celebrate death? Death is something to mourn, it's something to grieve, it's something to hate, but to celebrate it. That God would take on flesh, that he would allow himself to be beaten, stripped naked, lifted up and exposed for the world to see, mocked, ultimately pierced, suffocating, dying like a criminal. Celebrate that. Why? Because of what that accomplished. What it accomplished. This morning, uh, we're going to remind ourselves of, uh, of some, some other things. We're going to talk about emotional and, and mental health, specifically trauma. But we begin this morning by looking at the most traumatic event in human history which is the cross. And and to see how it is applied to us. For us to take objective truth, God died for sin, and make it subjective truth. God died for my sin. God died for the sins I've committed, but the sins I've also committed against other people. And when we begin to look at trauma, we discover like some trauma does stem from choices that we've made, but much of the trauma that we experience in life comes from the choices that other people have made that have affected us. So as we partake of communion this morning, I'd ask you to look at two things, or ask yourself two, two things. Did God die for my trauma? And do these symbols provide meaning for my suffering? If the answer is yes, will you take the bread, 
will you drink this cup? Making objective truth, subjective truth. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for the gift that it is and he is in bringing us salvation. Thank you for sending him. Help us this morning to be reminded of, of what joy really is and where it comes from. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak that the words people now hear are yours and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week, uh, we conclude our series on mental and uh, emotional health. Um, uh, this is uh, tied to Advent, and um, uh, next week, we'll, we'll conclude the Advent portion of that. We're going to have a very simple family kind of gathering. Our kids are going to lead us in worship. Uh, Tristan's going to bring the Christmas story, and, uh, and we'll light the candle of love, the last candle of Advent. But today, we conclude the mental and, and emotional health aspect of this series, and if you weren't here uh, for, for any of this, if you were just joining us, I would encourage you to go back and listen to, to past uh, sermons starting three weeks ago, uh, the week right after Thanksgiving. Uh, we looked at the life of Jesus and, and saw that throughout his life, he had this practice of getting away in silence and in solitude to be with his Father through the Spirit. And when we look at, at where did the strength come from for him? in order to, to live the life that he lived, in order to die the, the death that he, he died, where did the strength come from that enabled him to do all that? And, and we see that it came from the Father. It came from time, alone, with his Father, in relationship. And, uh, and, and so we, 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 we dove into that last, that week I gave you a, um, a resource that you could check out. Um, in fact, it, it, it's still available. If there's a QR code in the seat back in front of you, if you scan that, it'll take you to a web page, and you can scroll down to the bottom, and you'll see um, a resource for, for practicing silence and solitude. And one of the things uh, in, in that resource is that there's a list of feelings. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I come into the presence of God, and I don't know what I'm feeling. I don't know what it is that I'm dealing with. And so sometimes having like a list of feelings, you can, you can go through and help identify what it is, what is going on in, in your heart in that moment, and then bring that into the presence of God with you and say, God, what, what's going on in here? Help me to see what it is that I'm experiencing, what it is that I'm, that I'm feeling. Um, we, we need to, to take into account that our feelings do uh, matter that they're important. Uh, Danielle Dickey, who is a, a therapist, she's a member of our, our church, and uh, uh, she's uh, been helpful to me in the formulation of, of this series. And she reminded me uh, this week, and I'll, I'll just quote her, the reality is a lot of people are thinking about their issues but don't have a lot of experience feeling their way through their issues. We need to remove the stigma in church that feelings are weak or lying to us. Feelings are important clues as to what's going on and there can be a balance to the thinking and the feeling. And we as therapists encourage folks to use logic and feelings and to integrate the two instead of polarizing them. This morning as we begin to talk about trauma, uh, you're, you're going to feel a little bit. And you're going to, uh, either regards to your own trauma that you may have experienced or regard to somebody else, it's going to evoke emotions in you, and, and I would say it's, it's necessary to pay attention to those things. So, uh, let's begin. 
Uh, well, I do want to remind you of a couple things. Uh, one, um, if you haven't been here, uh, the last two uh, weeks are important. They, there's a lot of things that are interrelated. We talked about anxiety the first week and then depression. Um, and this week we're talking about trauma. There's lots of things that inter- interrelate uh, between those things. And so if you, if you didn't catch those, I would encourage you to go back to, uh, to listen to those. Um, we did talk about the fact that there's, there's limitations to a series like this. Um, uh, we talked about... Uh, you know, the, our hope for uh, this series and, and the first hope is that we begin a discussion that makes uh, these conversations easier um, to, to be had, that we can help people bring um, stuff out of, out of the darkness into the light, make things easier. Uh, second, to remind you, there is a, a present help in, in all these issues. There's a present help in our struggles um, and, and that we can find Jesus in them. Um, and so, uh, to, to dive into to, to, to the, to the definition of trauma, trauma results from exposure to an incident or series of events that are emotionally disturbing or life-threatening with lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual well-being. In other words, things that happen to us that uh, affect, restrict, or negate our ability to, to cope with what's happened. And, and when we say cope, what we mean is we, we mean facing, we mean addressing, we mean looking at what it is that is going on. Some of, of, of those experiences may, uh, may include physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, childhood neglect, living with a family member with mental health or substance use disorders, sudden unexplained separation from a loved one, poverty, racism, discrimination, and oppression, violence in the community, war, terrorism. Now, that's uh, by no means an exhaustive list. Um, People who have experienced traumatic events can experience flashbacks, panic attacks, disassociation, sleep problems, self-neglect, self-harm, suicidal thoughts, and alcohol and substance abuse. Now, it's important to note that often we make some assumptions. We, we, we look at what somebody has is, is dealt with, and we make some assumptions about what is acceptable responses and what are unacceptable responses. So we might have in view somebody who maybe has experienced combat or they have experienced the sudden loss of a child or maybe they have experienced a sexual assault and we would say, okay, it's appropriate for you to experience trauma from, from those sorts of things. That, it, that would be a natural response and yet we would have other people in view that would say what their experience is inappropriate like um, maybe someone lost a pet or maybe, um, maybe someone faced uh, like a, a traumatic illness but it turned out okay and either themselves or whoever they were concerned about is, is fine or maybe it's somebody who deployed to uh, a combat zone but never actually experienced live combat they were never shot at or heard explosions and so we would look at people in that, in that area and we would say well you know what you experience the trauma is that, that doesn't make sense That's, that doesn't follow so we, we would deem like some people's experiences acceptable and some people's as, as unacceptable and I think there's two things that we need to point out here. One is that acceptance of people who have experienced uh, trauma helps them. When we negate people's experience, we ostracize them, then we push them to the fringe, we isolate them, and nobody heals in isolation. Two people can have the exact same sort of experience and have very different responses to it. The second thing to point out here is that there are other factors to consider when recognizing someone's ability to cope. 
Uh, Sebastian Younger in his book, Tribe, notes, multiple studies, including a 2007 analysis of Medicine and National Research Council, found that a person's chance of getting chronic PTSD is in great part a function of their experience before going to war, for example. Uh, statistically, the 20% of people who struggle to overcome trauma tend to be those who are already burdened by psychological issues, either because they inherited them or because they suffered abuse as children. If you fought in Vietnam and your twin brother did not, but he suffers from a psychiatric disorder such as schizophrenia, you are statistically more likely to get PTSD. If you experience the death of a loved one or were not held enough as a child, you are up to seven times more likely to develop the kind of anxiety disorders that contribute to PTSD. He goes on to say, according to a 2000 study in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology, if you have an education deficit, if you are female, if you have a low IQ, or if you were abused as a child, you are also at an elevated risk for developing PTSD. The elevated risk for women is due to their greater likelihood of getting PTSD after a physical assault. For all other forms of trauma, men and women are fairly equal. These risk factors are nearly as predictive of PTSD as the severity of the trauma itself. So someone who has, is going through a, a traumatic experience and, uh, and, and say maybe that their cat died, and you're looking at how they're responding to that, and, and, and you're, you're saying that's not, a, that's not an appropriate an emotional response, what you're dealing with. Maybe it could be that, that, that there is something that happened to them much earlier on that is affecting how they're seeing this. Um, we need to, to, to remember that, that, that when we uh, tell people that what they're going through is, is not acceptable, we, we, we push them to the fringe and we isolate them and we don't bring help, we don't bring healing. Um, think of trauma this way, like a, it's like a file folder. And our mind is like a filing cabinet with all of our memories and, and our experiences. And things that are, are normal sort of situations, we're able to take them to the filing cabinet and, and categorize them and file them away and, 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 and put them in, in place. However, something happens to us, a traumatic event or a series of events that, that are disturbing, that are fearful, that are, that are painful, they're disruptive, and they just create this file folder and you don't have any place to put it. It's such a different experience than anything you've ever experienced before. And so you have this file folder like hanging over your head and, and you, you can't put it away. You can't file it anywhere. There's no place for it. And so you take it wherever you go with you. So you, you, you take it into the workplace with you or you take it into class with you. You take it on a date with you or you, you, you take it into the home while you're raising kids or you, or, or you get in the car and you, you take it from point A to point B. But, but what happens is something stressful hits you. What happens when you're going into class to take that final exam? Or what happens when you have this work presentation? Or, or what happens when you go to that date and they break up with you? Or what happens when you, your kids are fighting at home? Or, or what happens when somebody cuts you off on the freeway? All of a sudden, this file folder explodes and all of the contents just pour out. And the past is brought back into the present and there it is. How do we deal with that? Coping is our ability to file things away. It's our ability to, to take what's happened and, and put it in a place where we can go and revisit it if we want to, but it's not actively influencing every moment of, of every day. And, and for somebody who, who is, uh, maybe they, they've got um, 
uh, some biological factors. Or maybe there's some, some family of origin stuff going on. Or, or, or maybe they grew up in an abusive home. You, you take into account all those things that could possibly happen to a person. We need to recognize that, that we, it's far too easy to make assumptions about where people are at. Paul says this to the Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I think that this could be a failure of the church, that we dismiss trauma rather than meeting people where they're at and their sufferings. We look down on other people's ability to cope. We say trite, unbiblical things like, God will never give you more than you can handle. Where do you see that in Scripture? I think what we see in Scripture is actually God giving people more than they can handle. And we experience things that, that are more than we can handle. Instead of, of, of saying trite or, 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 or cursory things, we should invite people in, affirm their experiences, and help them deal. To, to help people dive into that, that filing cabinet. To, to help make sense of the mess that's there, to help organize it and, and to clean it up and to, to help someone file that trauma away until one day Jesus comes and takes it away permanently. Last week we talked about our need to address mental and emotional health holistically. That we need to address the mind and how it thinks and, and we need to address the, the, the body and how it, it works and its biology and we need to address the spirit. And for the sake of the time, I'm not gonna repeat much of what I said there, but we, we need to remember that we're not just thinking, feeling, spiritual beings. We, we do have a body and I wanna take a moment to, to highlight how trauma affects the body. Uh, California Surgeon General Nadine Burke Harris wrote a book called The Deepest Well. And in writing about childhood trauma states, 20 years of medical research has shown that childhood adversely, adversity literally gets under our skin, changing people in ways that can endure in their bodies for decades. She goes on to talk about how trauma tr uh, triggers uh, can, can change hormonal production, that they even alter the way that our cells replicate. Um, Therapist Adam Young says the word trauma comes from a Greek word meaning wound. A traumatic experience wounds the mind. It changes the physical structure of the brain just as a broken arm changes the physical structure of the bone. Trauma changes the mind. One of the ways this is seen is in the, the prefrontal cortex of our brain. That's, that's, that's the part of our brain that regulates rational thinking. Someone who's exposed um, uh, to, to, to traumatic events, especially um, long-term, uh, studies have shown that, that that part of the brain actually shrinks. It actually shrinks. The amygdala, that's the part of the brain that's rigged for survival. It produces a hormone called cortisol. When you experience a, 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 a dangerous situation, that, uh, the amygdala opens up and shoots cortisol into your body so that you can fight, you can address whatever's coming at you, you can run away from it, flight, or freeze if the moment requires. This week I was introduced to a, a fourth F that I didn't know existed. It's called fawn. Uh, fawning, uh, and again, Daniel helped me uh, by explaining it this way. Fawning is a trauma response where a person develops people-pleasing behaviors to avoid conflict and to establish a sense of safety. In other words, the fawn trauma response is a type of coping mechanism that survivors of complex trauma adopt to appease their abusers. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody 
and and the the topic was was light. It was uh, it was it was benign. It was just you know, super. You're, you're, it, it's playful. Maybe maybe it's a little bit heated, but maybe it's something over over something a little trivial, like the, the best quarterback or who's the who's got the best sports team. But it's something trivial, and there's going back and forth, and all of a sudden you notice that person just stops and shuts down. Like they they don't fight you on it. They don't walk away from you. They, they just sort of acquiesce to whatever you're saying, and they say, oh, okay, and, and what you, could it be that their amygdala just popped open, cortisol shooting through their body right now, and this is an, a, a response to acquiesce to you because somehow in that moment, you've turned from a friend to your eyes, and, and they're just shutting down. You ever experienced that with somebody? The amygdala is a part of it. The hippocampus, which is responsible for memory, Right, specifically being able to distinguish between past memories and what's happening now. It's been uh, proven that, that, that people who, who have ongoing trauma, uh, trauma or experienced ongoing trauma, that part of the brain shrinks. So people, when, when they experience something stressful, right, they're, they're carrying around that filed folder and all of a sudden that pops open and they can't distinguish between what's going on in this moment and the past trauma. It's brought into the moment. The physical structure of the brain is changed. There's, there's real biological factors that are going on. Now, um, there's healing. Um, there are evidence-based psychotherapy treatments that, that do work for trauma. One's called EMDR. Another is cognitive processing therapy, or CPT. Um, uh, there's something called prolonged exposure. Now, EMDR is, is short for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. That's a, a psycho, uh, psychotherapy treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, and it's been proven to help. If you want more information on that, you can talk to Danielle. I'll introduce you. Um, if you want more information on CPT or PE, I'll, talk to, I'll point you to Justin Bunn. But, but I say all this to point out the truth, that we, we need to recognize that when, when somebody is struggling, there's probably a lot more going on than what's on the surface. And so for us to just, just discount what they're experiencing... Um, is doing them harm, not good. Weep with those who weep. So we need to address thinking, feeling, biology, but also our spirits. So just in case some of you are worried that this is turning into an extended TED Talk, we will get to Scripture, I promise. Um, but I think God, in his grace, um, speaks through people speaks truthful things through, through people, even if they don't see the whole truth themselves. There's a man named uh, Viktor Frankl, and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, and in it he states, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Uh, Frankl, he survived Auschwitz. He, he survived the extermination camps. If you have a why, in other words, if you have a meaning behind the suffering, that makes a difference. Unlike the animal kingdom where we do see suffering, we can't chalk it up to some sort of circle of life. Human beings need to know why. We need a meaning. Um, Younger's book points out that there are, uh, well, there's, there's a question I'm, I want to pose to you. I think that some of you have been asking, can a, a Christian find help from a therapist or counselor who's not a Christian? Um, and the answer is, is yes, but. Um, there, there is help out there, and it can 
come in a, in a secular form. I mean, uh, you, you, can, you can learn more about EMDR and CPT and, and PE. Um, you, can, you can have a counselor who helps you with cognitive distortions. Um, you, you, can, you can turn to secular counseling and get some help. And I, I want to point out to you that, that any therapist you turn to or any counselor you turn to, they can't take you farther than they've been themselves. Okay, so um, if, if they don't have a relationship with Jesus, they can't take you to Jesus. If they don't have a full understanding of the gospel, they can't take you to the cross if they haven't been there yet. And so in answer to the question, can you see a secular therapist? I would say uh, yes, but the reality is, is as, as people have been asking me for help and referrals to, to counselors, um, there's a shortage of Christian counselors. There's a shortage of gospel-centered people with time and space in order to help. And I would say to you, it is better to receive help somewhere than nowhere. But consider maybe augmenting that with pastoral care, right? I, I stand ready to sit with you and be with you. I, I know that I have limitations in, 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 in training and knowledge and all of that, but if you're seeing a, a therapist that's helping, I can be a pastoral friend through that. Um, let's get to scripture. Turn with me to Hebrews 12. Again, we are we're beings that are created in the image of God. That in order to understand ourselves, we have to, have to look to him. And in order to to understand who, are, who we are, we, we recognize that we are spiritual beings. We're meant to relate to God in a spiritual way. We're meant to relate to one another in a spiritual way. Jesus begins, or I'm sorry, uh, the author of Hebrews begins chapter 12 this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Where do we turn? To answers. We look to Jesus. Now, uh, the word therefore, it, it means that the author is building on something that he just said. Hebrews chapter 11 is what we call sort of like the hall of heroes of faith. Like it's a list of people, uh, specifically from the, from the Old Testament, who've done great things but also suffered in, in great ways. And, and what it says at the end of chapter 11 is, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. That they were enabled to suffer, they were able, enabled to, 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 to endure, but they had to borrow on the future in order to do it. They, they had a glimpse of redemption. They had you know, a, a hope for, for what was to come, but the redemption didn't come during their lifetimes. They had to, 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 to hope and in, in, in borrow on the future based on the, the prophecy, at least, that they had. All right? They, they didn't re experience what we have, that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6. It wasn't until Jesus came in the role of our high priest in order to redeem us, that we now have what we need. But they were borrowing on the future. Um, thank you, Tristan, for that language, by the way. Uh, we need rest in our trauma. We need rest in our trauma. Hebrews 3 and 4 deals with how the Israelites, once freed from slavery, slavery they, they were not able to enter the promised land. Uh, this, this generation of Israelites, they, they'd endured 400 years of slavery. 
And God, he brings them out with a mighty hand. He, the, the, through the plagues and through all of this, like God reaches down, he saves them. He, he, he brings them into the wilderness. He feeds them. He clothes them. He, he, he gives them water to drink. I mean, every need that they possibly have, he's shown them that he has the power to deliver. And yet they get to the edge of the promised land and they see the, the giants in the land and they think, we can't do this. They, they are unable to enter to the rest of God because they didn't trust God. When we look at the Israelites, we notice here's a group of people that are constantly disobeying. They're constantly you know, worshiping other things. They're, they're constantly wanting to go back to Israel or to, to Egypt. Why? Trauma. 400 years of slavery. Um, my kids aren't here this morning. And uh, I'm going to share a little bit more of our story with you. Um, my sons became our sons because we adopted them out of foster care. Um, Jack was 17 months old. Uh, when we brought him home, Hank was seven months old. Um, we talked about the brain and its development. Um, your brain develops trust before you have language for trust. Uh, when, when you as a baby, when you, when you cried and you were picked up, your need was met. So when, when you were fed or when you were held or, or when you were changed, a need was met and you learned to trust. However, when a child cries and their needs are not met, they stop trusting. If you ever experience an infant that doesn't cry, that's a bad situation. So um, Jack, uh, well, they have the same birth mom. Uh, for both boys, their birth mom was abused physically while she was pregnant. That cortisol that shot through her body when she was being abused passed the blood-brain barrier and, and, and entered their little bodies. So a child in the womb experiences the same trauma as the mother. Um, on top of that, she turned to alcohol and drugs as a way of dealing Jack was born with fetal alcohol syndrome. Hank was born, uh, his, his mind drug affected. Um, on top of that, uh, she had preeclampsia. She uh, uh, gave birth to them. They were super, super premature. They spent the first few weeks of their lives uh, in, in the hospital. Um, when they were finally healthy enough to leave the hospital, they went into foster care. Jack was in five placements before he came to us. Five placements in 17 months. No chance for attachment. Hank was in a little bit better of a situation, but he had uh, severe physical struggles. And as a result of that, he had to have a lot of painful medical procedures done. When a child, before they have language, experiences intense pain and their caregiver isn't able to stop that, trust issues. By the time they were four and five, we were introduced to uh, something called reactive attachment disorder. Um, it's called RAD for short. We began to see stuff coming out of them and behaviors uh, that we, we knew weren't quite right. And it had to do with attachment. It had to do with trust. So we, uh, we underwent a therapy with them. Uh, we did uh, 12 weeks each in turn. We started with Jack. Um, the boys, they, they slept in our, in our bedroom. From the moment they woke up, um, we packed them. We put them in carriers 
and uh, we, we carried them around. So it, from the time they woke up, Melissa carried them. Um, I came home from work, and I would carry them the, the rest of the day. Um, the idea being that um, their, their ear is, is right next to your chest, listening to your heartbeat. You're making lots of eye contact with them. You're talking to them in soothing tones. You're feeding them. Um, and you're doing all of this sort of experiential stuff to try to make the, the attachment that they didn't get. Right? So um, at first they hated it. Um, we, uh, we got hit a lot. We got uh, bit a lot, headbutting um, a lot. And, uh, and, and as we went through this process, we began to see like there's, there's, there's stuff that's below language, right? Like there's, there's trust issues that are just, it's just coming out of them. And it's like we became their, their trauma sponges as we had to absorb it all. Uh, for Hank, it worked really well. Um, eventually, like he, he began to settle in and by you know, the, the last week of, of pouching him, he just loved it. He just loved being in, in that, that place. Um, Hank, is, he's, a, he's attached, he's trusting, he's, he's very loving and kind. Um, Jack, it helped a little bit, but um, he's still, he's not attached uh, to us in a lot of ways. He doesn't uh, trust uh, us in a lot of ways. Um, he's, uh, he's afraid about where his next meal's coming from, even though he's never missed a meal. Like, there's, there's things going on there that, anyway, um, we had the therapist come one day uh, when, uh, when one of them was going through a, a fit. And, um, and he, he, he watched uh, as we tried to soothe. And, uh, and what we were doing is we were, we were saying, it's going to be okay. It's okay. It's okay. And the therapist says, stop saying it's, it's okay. Because it's not okay. It's not okay. What's happened to them is not okay. It's not Okay. Sorry, I'm more angry right now than, than, than anything. It's not okay. He said, just say I'm here. I'm here. So that's what we did. We look at the Israelites in the wilderness and their inability to enter into God's rest because they couldn't trust him. Even though he'd done everything to prove he was trustworthy, they couldn't enter into that rest. And, and I guess the, the, the point I want to make from this is, is as parents, we need to deal with our stuff so we don't pass it on to our kids. We need, to, we need to face it. We need to learn to cope with it. We need to figure out how to file it away. We need help to do that. But we need to deal with our stuff so our kids don't have to deal with it. The next generation they were, they were able to enter God's rest. Now in Hebrews 4 and 5, the author uh, begins to show Jesus as our high priest. A priest is someone who mediates between God and man, right? It says uh, there, chapter 4, beginning of verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in who every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Better than any high priest that ever came before him or since, Jesus, fully God, 
could mediate to us from God, and fully man could mediate to God on our behalf. It's so essential that we cling to the doctrine that Jesus is fully God and fully man. In Hebrews 5, 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. The author, he's, he's referencing what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're going to get there to that in a second. But then in verse 8, it says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus, as fully God, knew before the foundations of the earth what the cross would be and do. He knew. He planned it. And yet, as fully man, he emptied himself of, of divine knowledge, and so he's facing the trauma to come, fully man. Um, it, when it says here, he, he learned obedience. That's not the only place you see that. Luke uh, 2, 52, talking about when Jesus was growing up, it said, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He, he empties himself of divine knowledge in order to learn as we learn. Philippians 2, 5 through 7 says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Second person of the Trinity, equal to the Father, takes a subservient role. Learning obedience. It says he learned wisdom, but he also learned obedience. Hebrews says that the cross of suffering was the crucible that perfected Jesus. You look at the crucible. Turn with me to Luke 22. There are passages of Scripture that without them you don't understand the fullness of the gospel. Without Genesis 1 and 2, you don't know what creation is about or what your purpose is. Without Genesis 3, you don't know where pain comes from. Without Revelation 21, you don't know how pain is taken away. But without places like Luke 22 and 23, you don't know how pain is redeemed. Jesus, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, "'Pray that you may not enter into temptation.'" And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Fully God, he planned the cross. But fully human, he stared into this cup of suffering, and he staggered, and he asked God for another way. Two weeks ago, we looked at Elijah, and his anxiety, he goes to a place where he meets with God. God shows his power, demonstrates his power. There's, there's wind that shakes rocks, and there's, there's an earthquake, and there's fire that consumed, but God isn't in any of those. He's in this whisper. But what we see in, in that story is there's Elijah, and he experiences the power of God, and then he experiences the presence of God. 
Last week we look at Job and, and, and same situation. God shows up at the end of that book and, and powerfully shows Job who he is and he sees the power of God and then he experiences the, the presence of God and Job says, now I see you. That's not what Jesus experienced. In Gethsemane, he's praying. God sends an angel to comfort him. God doesn't say, it's okay. Let's be clear, like the cross is not okay. That my sin killed God is not okay. That the the sins committed against me put on him. That he goes to the cross to, 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 to make his life an offering, a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. It's not okay. The Father sends an angel to comfort him. Jesus gets up and goes. And on the cross, we hear Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus didn't experience the presence of God like Elijah and Job did. He was abandoned. He was left. Why? So that we could be brought in. He was abandoned so that we could be adopted as sons and daughters. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. Look at Hebrews 12 again. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God for the joy set before him. Jesus in that garden saw what was ahead for him. He knew that physically it was painful. Horribly painful. Mentally destructive. His his friends walk away from him. Emotionally But spiritually, he faces the abandonment of his father. But he gets up from the ground and he goes for the joy set before him. He's borrowing on what the cross would accomplish for us. Frankel wrote, in some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning such as the meaning of sacrifice. If you're here this morning and you've experienced trauma, I want you to hear three things. First, Jesus knew trauma too. Jesus knew trauma too. Jesus experienced the depths of pain. He knew trauma too. In the garden, he was handed a red file folder. Now, as we pointed out in the silence and solitude messages, message, he he did have a relationship with God that helped him have have categories, that helped him have a file cabinet in order to process and, and, and have this. He had a relationship with the Father after he ascended. He's now seated at the right hand of, of the Father. But he knew trauma. The second thing to point out to you is he had a meaning for his trauma. 
in the garden when the, the drops of blood deceased and to pour from his brow, he got up and he went and he embraced the suffering. Frankel, after his experience in Auschwitz, he wrote, for the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom of so many thinkers, the truth, that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. John, the apostle, calls Jesus love. That God so loved, Jesus was sent. There was meaning in the cross for the joy set before him. He was borrowing on the future accomplishment of what the cross would do for us. There was meaning in it. Third, Jesus, because of the meaning of his suffering, because he was able to borrow on the accomplishment of the cross, went to the cross with joy. It is possible for us to experience trauma in joy. It is possible for us. This is the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness can vaporize the moment you experience suffering. Joy is being able to walk through it, knowing what it can accomplish. Fortunately, Viktor Frankl, uh, he was not a follower of Jesus. And uh, it seems like he was so close in, in so many ways to understanding the truth. But I think it's one of those, those examples that God can speak the truth even to people who don't fully grasp it. Uh, Frankel says this also, this is the last quote. What is to give light must endure burning. You want to give light? You got to be prepared to burn. Jesus endured the cross to be the light of the world. When it comes to your trauma, do you have meaning for it? And if you're here this morning, you'd say, I don't have a meaning for it. Give it meaning. Give it meaning. And you give it meaning by doing for others what Christ did for you. Christ entered in. Christ came. Christ embraced us. He is with us. He entered into the suffering and the pain and the trauma of life. If you've gone through that, then you have something that other people don't have, and that's empathy. You have the ability to go into another person's life and express love to them. Not to, to, to go in and with, with, with trite comments, say, oh, it's gonna be okay, it's gonna be okay. But to say, I'm here. To do for others what Christ did for us. Our Emmanuel, our God with us. What would happen if the church didn't marginalize people who were traumatized, but we surrounded them? What would happen if we loved people like Jesus loved people? Uh, every week during the series, we've concluded with a testimony. Um, this week, it comes from uh, Panita Taitaktam. I'm not sure if I pronounced the last name right. Panita's been going to our church, or part of our church, for a few months now. 
And when she heard the invitation for uh, uh, giving a testimony, she, uh, she stepped out of her comfort zone and, uh, and said yes. She wasn't able to be here this morning in person, so we videoed it, and we're going to show you the video now. Hello, my name is Panita Tiente. Um, first and foremost, I am grateful for this opportunity to share the deepest parts of my heart. Um, and my prayer is that it blesses you and encourages you as much as this process has blessed me. I want to be real with you, all even in video form, and say that I am completely terrified of public speaking. <laughs> so. I would much prefer to have a non-rehearsed conversation, um, but with that in mind, I'm going to legitimately read my story to you. Um, so as an introduction, I am originally from Bangkok, Thailand. I was with my biological mother for six weeks before being placed in the foster care system, and I was adopted when I was one and a half. My adoptive family lives in Wisconsin, and I lived there for about 17 years. Um, I have two older adoptive brothers and we were all homeschooled from the beginning to the end. I attended college for one semester in pursuit of architecture. I quit, however, because I didn't want to spend all my days on the computer. Instead, I started my own small business and ministry, which have, both of which have followed me to where I am now. And I am also a dance instructor. Um, I trained in ballet for 14 years, but my ultimate dream is to be a wife and to raise a family. <clears throat> it is becoming more well-known, but it's still sometimes unknown, that adoption is traumatic. Furthermore, uh, the trauma of adoption begins in the womb. Unborn children can sense the general atmosphere and emotions of the mother and those around her, whether it be joy and excitement, or in most adoptees' cases, um, anxiety, fear, and even disappointment. Adoptees also usually have very good memories, um, and I personally remember pretty much everything. I remember the flash of a camera very early on. I remember my mother's touch and her voice and I remember the day that she gave me away. There was sunshine coming in from an open door. Um, she held me very tightly and I know, I remember she whispered something to me and I knew that I would never see her again. She herself just was very much like sunshine and when she left, it was all done. I remember my foster parents, too. Um, I remember when my adoptive parents came to visit. I was, I felt very shy and confused. Um, I remember getting a picture taken with my foster parents and adoptive parents. And I also knew that I would never see them again after that. Um, to this day, I can still feel this feeling of devastation uh, that I felt about 20 years ago when that happened. I confess that I still cannot understand how you could love someone and not keep them. I have never been able to fathom that. And being adopted has caused me to doubt that I can even be loved. Um, 
it's caused me to be untrusting of men, I having never met my biological father. Um, and in the past, it has caused me to be unable to commit to relationships and to people and to open up. <clears throat> so I grew up with this reality that you will have to leave the people you love someday. And there will be no reason, um, and you'll have no control over it. I just thought that that was the way that the world worked. And unfortunately, that very false reality ended up being true once again uh, after about 17 years. Um, I've always wanted, whenever I tell this part of my story, I always want to start with how much I love my parents. I really, really love my parents. And though I could not always view them this way, um, they are not hurtful people. They are just hurting from their own pasts, which tends to be the case for most people who have this sort of emotional uh, trauma, I suppose you could say. I am sad because they are not free from their own pain, and I, I'm, I can see that now. Um, but reality is because of that, uh, we as their kids were not free from their pain either. Um, <clears throat> these things would have affected us growing up even if it wasn't for adoption, but adoption just compounded the effects of the past, for sure. Um, from a very young age, I felt in my heart that something was off about my adoptive family. I felt this sense that there was something that just wasn't quite right, and I couldn't quite figure out what it was. As a child, I lived in this constant anxiety. I was always guarded. Even down to the way that I played with my toys around them. I, as I got older, the feeling continued. Our family was not like other families, and I was not treated by my parents like my friends were treated by my parents. Um, and when I was a teenager, it was like the happy times we had were the rare times. And I was just waiting for it to go back to normal when everything was uncertain and we all walked on eggshells around each other. Um, when I reached early adulthood, it got to the point where I felt free just stepping out of the house. Um, I found myself taking five mile walks every day just to get away or intentionally taking the long way home from work so that I wouldn't have to be home for as long. Eventually, all those years of emotional manipulation, uh, neglect, control, and inconsistency had just piled up. And I had become anxious and angry and depressed, and, and I had become suicidal as well. Um, there was a time I went from starving my, my parents to starving myself because I just didn't want to live anymore. <coughs> It really wasn't until those physical signs showed up and people on the outside got involved that I realized what was going on. So when I was 19, I left home and moved to Ohio. And that was about, this, that was December 14th through December 23rd is when I left and then moved. So it's all very timely, all of this. Um, by the time that you will all be watching this. It will have been about two years since I've talked to any of my immediate or extended family. The interesting thing is, 
As much as my parents' pain was hurtful to both them and to us, I find that it is all I've ever known, and I act out of my own pain as well, just, just like them. Um, I have found that emotional trauma often works that way. Which brings me to my last story. You might wonder why I moved to Ohio <laughs> from Wisconsin. Um, at the time, I was dating a guy from Ohio, and we had a once-in-a-lifetime meeting. He had come to visit our church, and um, he was, it was a friend of a friend situation. Um, and it was his family, especially, that helped me out of my situation at home. Uh, I lived with him for about a year and a half. Um, now, I had little to no healing up to this point. I can say with confidence I was not a very healthy person. <laughs> um, and to add to that, on a more normal level, you could say, I did not know what I wanted in life, and I didn't know who I was. I had just left this situation at home. It was my first time to be making decisions for myself. Um, and neither did he. He didn't know what he wanted or who he was. We were both still very young and figuring all of that out. We were both broken people, as we all are, and it resulted in a broken relationship. He loved me, he loved me so much, and I didn't know how to love, or not even necessarily how to receive love. Um, I often wonder why we had ever met, but it had dawned on me one day, Though there never is just one reason for things. I think one of the biggest was that I just needed to be loved. I needed to know that what it was like and that it was possible. You've been through so much is something people often say to me. And I never know how to respond. I just kind of nod my head because I know it's true. But I'm not really upset about it. I definitely used to wonder, not even why me, but just why, <laughs> and why had nothing in my life gone how I'd hoped or dreamed, or why my life couldn't have just been normal. <laughs> um, there were multiple times when I wondered why I was alive, because I didn't think that I was worth it. And then I would think why I had to be alive because I didn't want to be. But <clears throat> this summer, after all was said and done, things kind of settled. I was sitting on my bed. I was half talking to God and half talking to myself. And I was like, I'm so happy to be alive. Not only was that the first time I'd ever felt that way, or I should say, not only was that the first time I had ever said that, but it was also the first time I had ever felt that way. And the truth is, I didn't do anything. I didn't beg God to make me feel that way. Um, I didn't force myself to see all the positive things in my life. It just happened. And now I cannot fathom not wanting to be alive. I wouldn't change any part of my story for anything because it's my story. It is the story that God has written specifically for me, and he is in every single detail of it all.
even before I knew he existed. Uh, he was guiding everything. And it's not over yet. There will always be beautiful and painful parts of my life. But somehow, God has shown me that I can have joy not only through it, but because of it. Because he loves me and there is a purpose for everything we go through in life. And all I really want to do is love God and show others a kind of love that I did not get to experience. And I can do that because of everything that I've gone through. I have learned so much more about God, about life, about myself. I can love so much more, and I value this life so much more. Somehow, I have found joy in my heart. And I truly pray that you have hope that you will find joy in your heartache as well. God is sovereign over everything, and I can say firsthand that I know that to be true. So, thank you for listening, <laughs> and I hope you have a very Merry Christmas.